Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Leviticus, chapter 1. If you came to uh, worship in ancient Israel in Moses' time, you would not gather as we gather uh, in a room like this where we hear the scriptures taught and we minister to one another in various ways. You would uh, come to a little tent. It would look very much like the house that you live in, constructed along the same lines, same floor plan. Just a little tent, about uh, 45 feet long and about 15 feet wide and 15 feet high. It had a rigid framework and it was covered with a canopy made out of uh, badger skin. So it looked like any Bedouin tent, basically, that you would see today or back then. It was surrounded by a courtyard uh, about the length of uh, the width of a football field and about 50 feet wide and with a barrier around it, uh, a little over seven feet high so that you couldn't see into the courtyard, but you could see through the front door. And if you walked through the front door, the first thing you would see would be a big altar made out of wood, acacia wood, and covered with bronze plates with horns on the corners of the altar. That's where the animals were sacrificed. Between the altar and this little tent, there was something that looked like a bird bath. It was a place for the priests to wash their hands. And then there was the little tent. Now, if you lived in Israel, you wouldn't get an opportunity to look inside the tent. That would, would be prescribed for you. But uh, you would know from the reports that the tent had two rooms. There was an outer room, which was called the holy place. And then an inner room, which was called the Holy of Holies. Now, that's a Hebrew idiom for most holy or holiest place. They didn't have an absolute degree in their language as we do, and so they stated that idea by saying Holy of Holies, most holy place, the holiest place of all. And uh, that was the place where, in picture, God lived. As you know, there was a little box inside that Holy of Holies about the size of a footlocker, and that was the Ark of the Covenant. And according to the visual aid or the picture, that was the dwelling place of God. Now, they knew back then, as we know today, that God was not limited in space to a little tent, but that was a picture of God living in their midst. That's the first of a number of pictures you have through the Old Testament and on into the New Testament of a tabernacling God, a God who lives with us, who set up his pup tent in our midst. If you've ever seen pictures of the uh, camp of Israel as they were gathered around the uh, tent, their tents were located in various places uh, around the uh, tabernacle, but uh, the tabernacle, being a tent just like theirs, represented God pup tenting with man. It's a beautiful picture. And in the New Testament, you have uh, John saying the word that is God became flesh and tented among us. That's the meaning of that word that we've translated dwell. He tabernacled, he pup tented with us. Now in the New Testament, the church is the tabernacle in which God dwells or the temple. And so are you and so am I. God has come to live in our tent. He's come to live in our bodies. That's the amazing thing. The God of the universe lives inside of you and inside of me. And therefore we have all the power that we need to face life. 
Whatever the pressures are upon us, they're really pressures upon God because he lives in our bodies. That idea alone has kept me out of more trouble than perhaps any other concept in the Bible. There are a lot of things that I would like to do with my body. My body really wants to do those things, but I cannot, or I know that I should not, because I know those are not things that God approves of. That may keep you out of the back seat of a parked car at some point in your life. That may keep you out of uh, a pornographic shop. It may keep you out of all sort of sorts of things when you realize that God is in your body. Now, that's the idea of a tabernacling God that was illustrated by this little tent in Israel. Now, if you came to worship at that tent, there are five forms of sacrifices that you could, you could offer. The first two are very closely associated, and the last two are very closely associated. They're all described here in Leviticus, and I'm not going to take time to read the passage. I would encourage you to go home this afternoon and read it on your own. But let me tell you in just a little detail what transpired in each of these sacrifices. The first was the burnt offering. The Hebrew word just means uh, to send something up, to ascend, cause something to ascend. And the idea is that this sacrifice was consumed in its entirety and it smelled good to God as the aroma of the sacrifice went up. Now what you did was this. You took a, a goat, a male goat or a male lamb or it could be a pigeon or a dove depending on your financial condition and you brought that animal to the entrance of the, of the tabernacle. And you laid your hands on that animal's head as a sign of identification. Now, in a few weeks, we're going to lay hands on uh, Steve Newman and Holly Newman and send them off to Singapore. Really, all we're saying is that they represent us. They're going in our place. Now, that's the idea behind the laying on of hands. It was a, a, a question of identification. So you would identify with this animal. This animal would take your place, and then you, the worshiper, would kill it. Now, I don't know how you women think about that. I suppose you could get used to anything. My mother used to wring the heads off of chickens, and, and I suppose you can uh, become inured to almost anything. But uh, I really think in the Old Testament, although there's no clear evidence for myself, I think the men took this grisly job on themselves because they were the high priests of the family, and your husband or your father, if you were unmarried, would would do this for you. The animal would be slain. The priest would take the blood and he would pour it around the base of the altar. Then you would quarter the animal and place it on the altar and it would be utterly, totally consumed. All of it burned up. That's the burnt offering. Now there is a closely associated offering. The, the two are often found together and they follow one another in Leviticus. The second offering is called the cereal offering or the grain offering. And the Talmud, which is the Commentary: the collection of commentaries by the rabbis over the years says that this sacrifice was basically the burnt offering, but it was offered by the poorest of people, those who could not afford even a, a dove, a turtle dove, or a pigeon. And you would grind some barley and wheat, and you would bring the loose grain in your hands, or you might bake it into a little cake, or you could fry it on a griddle, or you could deep fry it, it looked like a little donut, I suppose, or you could uh, bring an ear of corn, roast an ear of corn, and bring that. Perhaps that's all you had. 
But you could bring that and it, it, would, be, it would be offered up. That's the sort of thing that Cain offered. There wasn't anything wrong with Cain's offering the fruit of his hands. Basically, that was a grain offering. The problem was Cain's heart. The text is very clear. God did not accept Cain. It wasn't his offering. The problem was Cain. Now, both of these offerings signify the same thing. They are a picture of the yielding up of our bodies to God in response to everything that God has done for us. That's what it means. There's no indication in the text that these were offered on behalf of sin. They were voluntary offerings that were a picture of the yielding up of our life. It's what Paul describes in Romans 12 when he says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God or on the basis of everything that God has done for you to present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's the only reasonable worship, act of worship, that any of us can carry out. In view of everything that God has done for us, we say, God, here's my body for you to use as you see fit. Now, God wants living sacrifices, not dead sacrifices, and so the animal took the place of the Israelite. But it's a beautiful picture of what God ultimately wants from us. He's not really interested in the time that we invest on his behalf or the money that we give or the energy that, that we expend on his behalf. What he wants is you and me. He wants us. And these people in the Old Testament knew that. They knew that. This wasn't anything new. This isn't a New Testament concept. They knew what they were doing when they brought that animal. It was a picture of the greater reality, the presentation of ourself. David, for example, in Psalm 40, Psalm 40 said, says, God doesn't want burnt offerings. In the role of the law, that is in the whole volume of the law, it is written of me to do thy will. That's what God wants. He wants us to do his will. Then he says, sacrifice and burnt offerings you don't want. But as Hebrews translates that passage, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, Testament, a body you have prepared for me. In other words, what God wants is his body. And that's what God wants from you and me. Just our lives. Everything that we are. Everything that we hope to be. And Lord, here I am. And uh, that really boils down to a presentation of our wills. We will do what we have to do because God told us to do it. We will pay our taxes because Jesus said to. We will pay our debts because Scripture tells us to. We may have to... uh, go to our creditor and make arrangements for payment. We may have to tell him that we don't have the money and assure him that we'll pay it off at some point in the future, but we have to, we have to do something about our debts. We have to stick with our mate, no matter what. That's what it means to present your body a living sacrifice. We can, that, that can be a cliche, it can be a, a Christian buzzword that we use. It has no meaning unless it, it works out in terms of specific acts of obedience. Now, that's what the burnt offering and the grain offerings were. They symbolized this greater truth of the offering up of our life. Now, the third uh, sacrifice was called a peace offering. And uh, in this case, a male goat or male sheep was brought to the, uh, 
brought to the tabernacle, and the man identified it, uh, identified with it again, and it was slain, and only a portion of the animal was uh, was burned, the fat. Because, as the Old Testament tells us, the fat belongs to the Lord. That's his portion. That's God's perquisite. The fat was delightful to him. He delighted in it. Now, that's a good thing to remember, you ladies, when you're struggling with your weight. <coughs> this is another subject, and, and I don't want to get started on this because I can go forever. But where did we ever come off with the idea that skinny is spiritual? Really? That's a cultural thing. Gluttony is a sin, but certainly uh, attaining some cultural standard of beauty is, is not, it's not incumbent on us as Christians. It's not binding on us. Where did we ever get that idea? You ever notice the 16th, 17th century painters, the Dutch masters, uh, whenever they portray uh, Mary, she's always chubby. Because that was spiritual back then, you see. But today, sin is in, in that spirit. That's a cultural idea. It's a social idea. Gluttony is a sin. But uh, you could comfort yourself with the fact that you're a little bit overweight, that God delights in the fat. He loves it. <laughs> now, I won't discourse on that because I'm uh, inclined to go to seed when I start on that one. But this fat was offered up because that was God's... Uh, portion. It was given over to him. And uh, then do you know what they did with the rest of the animal? The worshiper and the priest and the worshiper's family and his friends gathered around and they feasted. They ate the sacrifice. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of communion and sharing together the life of God. Uh, the uh, New Testament counterpart is what we call the communion, the Lord's table. The love feast, and we gather around the Lord's table, or we gather in one another's homes, and we we eat together out of a sense of our commonality, our oneness in Christ, our union with Him, and our joy at being a part of of His body. Now, these first three sacrifices were all uh, voluntary; they weren't uh, they weren't compulsory. But the last two were compulsory. They are the sin offering which you'll find in chapter 4 of Leviticus. And what is sometimes called the guilt offering, but I think a better term is the offense offering in chapter 5, beginning with verse 14. In the sin offering, the priest would bring a bull. If you were a leader or a prince in Israel, an appointed or an elected official, you would bring a goat because uh, in the ancient world, male goats were symbolic of leadership. Or, if you were a commoner, you would bring a female sheep, or a female goat, or uh, a dove, or a pigeon, or some grain. And here, you would lay your hands on the animal, confess your sins. The animal would be slain, if it was an animal that you brought. Portions of the animal would be sacked, would be burned on the altar, and the rest of the carcass would be taken outside the city and burned in the garbage dump. Now, the book of Hebrews makes a great deal of this particular sacrifice. And we're told that Jesus himself is the sin offering. He was made sin for us. It's as though we laid our hands on Christ, confessed our sins. He went to the cross for us. 
And then, as Hebrews says, he was taken outside the camp. He was crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem. As though to say, he was treated as a piece of human garbage. They took him outside the walls and they put him to death. Now, John said when he, when he saw Jesus down by the Jordan and later in the streets of Jerusalem, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And everyone who heard that knew exactly what he was talking about. They immediately thought of the sin offering. All our iniquity was placed upon Christ. Now, that's the reality of which the sin offering is nothing but a shadow or a symbol. It wasn't the sin offering that set things right between the Israelite and God. That was simply a picture of the sacrifice that would come later. That's the real sacrifice. That's when God became sin for us. Now, the cross is not an event merely in time, it's in eternity. And the implications of the cross run both ways through time, back to the past and on into the future. The people in the Old Testament were rendered acceptable to God, not on the basis of these offerings, which pointed forward to Christ, but on the the basis of the sacrifice of Christ. Just as we look back to the cross, they looked forward. The sacrifices were just a picture, that's all. But what a beautiful picture of the fact that uh, our iniquity was placed upon him and he died in our stead. Now, the sin offering has to do with sins committed against God. The next offering, the last offering, the fifth, which we've called the offense offering, is is closely allied with it. That was an offering that you rendered up if you offended somebody else, if you offended against the the tabernacle, if you brought a damaged animal, for example, or you didn't pay your tithe. Then you're required not only to bring the animal, but to evaluate the animal, give it a a monetary value, and then add to it a one-fifth premium or a penalty. You gave the value of the animal, $20 plus one-fifth, a total of, what, $24 or whatever that is. That was, the, that was the payment, the reparation, the restitution made for offenses against the temple or the tabernacle. If you offended against another Israelite, if you stole something from him, if you exploited him, manipulated him in some way, borrowed something from him, never gave it back or found an animal that wandered away and you kept it instead of taking it back, then you had to set things right with that person. So the offense offering had to do with with reparation for sin, restitution for sins committed against others. The sin offering against God. The offense offering against others. And these two sacrifices together indicate the steps that we need to take in dealing with sin in our own lives. When we sin against God, we just need to remind ourselves of our forgiven state. As John puts it, if we confess our sins, we fess up. We admit our need of salvation, ongoing salvation. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to keep on forgiving our sins. Now, he's talking about the subjective feeling of guilt that we have. He's not talking about objective guilt. That was taken care of in the cross. He forgives us forever. We don't need to worry about incurring God's wrath any longer. Once we put our faith in Christ, then our sins are paid for. Paul says in Ephesians 1, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin according to the riches of his grace. That's a fact. But our subjective realization of that forgiveness is not always there. Sometimes we feel defiled. We feel guilty. And in a case like that, we need to, in effect, 
bring the sacrifice to the altar, remind ourselves of the sacrifice that made things right with God. But then there are those times that we offend against people. We hurt them. We exploit them. We use them. Or we sin against them. We need to go to them. That's the point that the sacrifice is making and and set things right. Ask their forgiveness. And very often that's a step that we have to take in order to deal with our guilt. It's not enough merely to realize that we're forgiven before God. If we've sinned against somebody else, often that subjective guilt remains until we go to that person and face them and say, I was wrong. I've sinned against you. Forgive me. Now, now the question is, to what extent were Jews back then forgiven? Were they forgiven entirely? I've heard it discussed among, among Christians that there are only certain sins that were forgivable, and that is unintentional sins. Now, there are certain sins of inadvertent sins that they committed. They didn't know they were violating the law, and they could be forgiven of those sins, but they could not be forgiven of, of deliberate sin. But unfortunately, that's based on a bad translation of the Old Testament. In Numbers 15, there is that word uh, inadvertent that's used, or unintentional sins. But the word really means sins of error, sins of weakness, sins of the flesh. And they're listed here in Leviticus 6 as uh, extortion and, and theft and false witness and debauchery, all sorts of things. The only sin that, uh, that the sacrifices could not atone for was what is called in the Bible the sin with a high hand, that is, high treason against God, picketing God, saying, we will not accept your way of salvation. We will choose our own way. And instead of submitting to God's plan to save us, we try to save ourselves or we go some other route. That's what the New Testament calls the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is not child molestation or wife swapping or wife beating or any, or any of those horrendous things. We can be forgiven of any sin. The unpardonable sin is the sin of turning away from the plan of salvation that God has provided. It's saying no to the witness of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is the way and the only way. And that's the only sin of which we cannot be forgiven. That ties God's hands. There is only one way of salvation. That's through Christ and the sacrifice that he made for us. There isn't any other way. And if we reject that plan, there is no other plan. God can do nothing for us. But it doesn't matter what else you may have done. You're forgiven on the basis of Christ's death if you will appropriate it, if you accept it for yourself. Now, there's one other passage I want you to look at, Leviticus 16. This is the Day of Atonement that's described here. And I don't have time to talk about it in detail. This was a, a once-a-year event. It happened annually. It still happens today in Judaism. We call it Yom Kippur, but uh, that's just an Anglo- anglicized uh, form of the Hebrew word Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And uh, this was the, still is today, a high and holy day, the highest of, of Jewish uh, holy days. Um, on this day, Jews today, as well as 
Jews back then fasted all day, spent their waking hours in prayer. This was the day that the high priest offered up a goat for the entire congregation. He alone went into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place on this day. That was the only day that anyone could could go into the the most holy place. And we're told in verse 3 that Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. That's for himself. He offered up the ram first, as again as a symbol of his offering up his life to God. And then the bull for a sin offering for himself, because he was the priest. And then in verse 6, he shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. So he offered up the ram for a burnt offering for the nation. And then in verse 7, we're told that he's to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of the meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. So they cast lots to determine which of these goats will be the one sacrificed and which will be the scapegoat. And then what follows is a description of the cleansing of the temple and the articles within the, uh, the tabernacle, rather, and the articles within the tabernacle and the cleansing of the people. And then in verse 20, it says, When he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting in the altar, he shall offer the live goat. That's the sin offering for the, the people. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat. And confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. And the goat shall bear on itself all. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land. And he shall not release, but rather send the goat to the wilderness. Now again, remember, all these sacrifices are, are pictures. They don't represent the reality. They're, they're, they're visual aids to remind us of, of the truth. The first goat was sacrificed to remind us that our Lord Jesus forgives sin. The second goat reminds us that he forgets sin. The priest would confess all the sins of the congregation. I have no idea how long this took or what form it took, but he confessed their sins over the head of this uh, goat. And then someone led the goat out into the wilderness and they lost it. They took it out into a solitary land where no one lived and they turned it loose and they forgot it. And what a beautiful picture of God's forgetfulness. I don't know about you, but sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night. That's always uh, the time for me. And, and I start thinking of all the things that I have done that I should not have done in my past, the people that I've hurt, the things that I've said, my foolish actions that have been so destructive. And then I start thinking of all the things that I have not done that I should have done. And I start feeling this terrible sense of guilt. And you know it over and over again, it's helped me to think of this guilt. The psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. How far is the east from the west? Well, it's an infinite distance, an immeasurable distance. 
God has forgotten our sin. And I must not go looking for that goat. My tendency is to uh, try to find him. And somehow make atonement all over again. But God has sent that goat out into the wilderness and he's lost for all time and eternity. God has forgotten. Peter Gilquist in his fine little book on forgiveness says that it's as though we're walking across a field like the one here and suddenly a sense of guilt descends upon us and we think of some sin in the past that we may have confessed but has come back to haunt us. We say, oh God, forgive me for that thing. And, and, and a voice comes, comes to us. Forgive you for what? He doesn't even remember. Well, of course he does. But you see, he doesn't hold it against us. That's the point. It's forgotten. We're not only forgiven, but the past is forgotten. Now, perhaps uh, you're here and you have never taken advantage of that forgiveness. If so, you can ask Christ this morning to be your Savior. Thank him for dying for you. Ask him to come into your life. Forgive you of all of your sins. And then you'll know that your sins are forgiven and forgotten. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, those who are burdened down with guilt and the sense of having to do better, and I'll give you rest. Let's stand together. And will you pray with me if you've not prayed this prayer? Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for becoming sin on my behalf. I want to claim as my own this morning the fact that you died for me. Thank you. Thank you now that I have the not only the forgiveness from the past, but power to live as you've called me to live. Thank you for forgiving me, for granting me your resources for life. And Father, we do thank you for being our Lord, for laying aside your glory, for taking our place, becoming sin for us, our most realistic response is to offer up our lives in submission to you. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.